Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. But we turn to the Lord's Word this morning and we turn to Malachi. We return and pick up his cross-examination of Israel. I want to offer just a brief reminder of what's happening for those of you who may not have been with us in our time through Malachi. Malachi is, is speaking to Israel around 430 B.C., about 80 years after Israel returned from exile to Jerusalem. They completed the rebuilding of the temple of God at his urging through Haggai and Zechariah. But in those 80 years since the rebuilding of the temple, Israel did not see this temple filled with God's glory. They did not see prosperity returning to Jerusalem. They didn't see God's enemies defeated. And all of these were things that Haggai and Zechariah had promised or had prophesied. Instead, they see Israel continuing to limp along at the mercy of foreign powers. And so Israel's hearts began to, to doubt God's love for them and his promises to them. And they began to live in ways that were perhaps economically or politically advantageous, but were disobedient to God and his word. And so God in his mercy has sent Malachi to address the people of Israel. And so far we've seen Malachi expose Israel's doubts of God's love their dishonoring worship, their disobedient priests, and their faithlessness in their marriages. And this morning, we arrive right at the end of chapter 2, the last verse of chapter 2. We'll see as Malachi again uses this familiar formula that he's used a number of times, challenging the people with another statement about their hearts that surprises them before he turns to a perfect Advent theme with the coming of God's messenger. Let's read Malachi beginning at the last verse of chapter 2 and down through verse 6 of chapter 3. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver." And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the idolaters, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. 
Father, this is your word and we are thankful for it. May we never underestimate the blessing of having your word which you've spoken to us. Would you use it in our lives this morning for your sake? Amen. Where is the God of justice? This is a question and a cry that has been echoed by many through Scripture and through history. It's a cry born of knowing the claim that God is just and yet coming face to face with suffering and tragedy that appear to befall the innocent, that do befall the innocent while seeing evil flourish. We hear the cry from 20th century writer Susan Jacoby as she stares at her young friend lying in an iron lung, debilitated by polio. We hear it from Ellie Wiesel, the Holocaust survivor after watching truckloads of children burned to death in Nazi camps. We hear it from those around us, perhaps, who expect suffering, but when suffering reaches a certain point, feel that God has let it go too far and that his fairness or justice is no longer credible in the face of the suffering they experience. And God gives voice to this question multiple times in Scripture. Job cried out after his health and his children and his possessions were taken from him, Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call out for help, but there is no justice. In Psalm 73, the psalmist declares, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence, for all day long I have been stricken. Here in Malachi 2, we find Israel in the 5th century BC asking the same question, accusing God of delighting in the wicked. Now in Job and in Psalm 73, it was God's presence that provided the necessary answer and comfort to this question. God drew near and spoke to Job. He reminded Job of his character, of his providence, of his greatness, which can be trusted even in situations that are beyond our limited understanding. And then God blessed Job as faithful to his character. And the psalmist, he came into God's sanctuary into the presence of God and was reminded that God was his strength and his portion forever while the wicked were headed for certain judgment in the end. And yet while Job and the psalmist found comfort, when the Israelites in Malachi 2 ask this question, God responds differently. He declares that by asking this question, Israel has wearied him with their complaint. This is striking language, calling up the image of a a parent who's exasperated by the badgering of a toddler who's not getting what he wants. God's response is essentially saying, it's not Israel who's suffering unjustly, but God who has to hear their unjust complaints against him. Now, why was God's response different in Malachi 2 than in Job in Psalm 73? Because in this case, Israel was blinded by their own sin. They were not wrong about God's character, but they were wrong about their own situation. So they assumed that they deserved God's blessing, and they grumbled that God wasn't giving it to them. But they are not in the position of Job, 
who spoke what was right of God, nor of the psalmist who had kept himself for wickedness. No, they have doubted and profaned the Lord and been faithless to him and to each other. And so God responds to Israel through Malachi. And the main point of his response to Malachi is that while Israel wants the God of justice to show up, they are not actually prepared to be in the presence of a just God. And to get the details, let's look at God's answer, God's warning, and God's guarantee in his response to Israel. We start with God's answer to Israel's question in verse 1. Where is the God of justice? Israel has asked. And God says, behold, I send my messenger. The Hebrew here literally reads a more direct answer to the question. The literal translation would be, where is the God of justice? Here I am. I am about to send my messenger. And the grammar of the phrase, I'm about to send my messenger, implies something that is imminent, that could happen at any moment, that God is ready to show up by sending his messenger. Now, in the ancient world, when a king approached a city, the king would send an emissary or or a messenger ahead of him who would clear the road for the king's arrival, but also prepare the people and let them know that the king was coming so that he would receive the honor that he deserved. And God promises here that he is going to send just such a messenger who would prepare the way for his arrival. If you fast forward to the New Testament, this messenger has a name. His name is John the Baptist. In fact, in Mark 1, verse 2, Mark quotes this very verse, Malachi 3, 1, alongside another verse from Isaiah to describe John the Baptist, the messenger who would come to prepare the way before the Lord by calling Israel to repentance and telling them that the Messiah is just about to arrive. And of course, right behind the messenger comes the king. And that's what Malachi says, because after the messenger shows up, the Lord whom you will seek will suddenly come into his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And we know in the Christmas story that this is exactly what happened. Jesus is born six months after John. And what happens? Jesus is brought as a baby into the temple. He's presented in the temple. The Lord shows up in his temple and Simeon and Anna recognize him for who he is and break into praise to God for sending their Redeemer. And in their ministries too, John begins baptizing many for repentance of their sins and months after Jesus shows up to be baptized by John and begin the ministry God has given him. These verses are such a beautiful description of Jesus, and they highlight both who he is and what he has come to do. These verses describe who Jesus is. Jesus is both the Lord himself. Verse 1 tells us that the Lord will come into his temple. It's Jesus who comes into the temple as the Lord himself. And yet, he is also a messenger of the covenant whom the Lord will send. And so his divinity as the Lord, and yet distinction as someone the Lord will send may have been confusing to Israel 430 years in advance, and yet it is God foreshadowing and telling accurately what will happen in the incarnation when Jesus is born 
as a baby boy, but a boy who is nothing less than Emmanuel, God with us. And then Jesus' work is also described. He's described as the Lord's messenger of the covenant. And by calling Jesus the messenger of the covenant, God identifies Jesus as the key to his whole plan of redemption. Because God's covenant of redemption with his people, whether we're thinking of God's covenant with Adam, promising a seed who would crush the head of the serpent, or God's covenant with Abraham, promising that through his offspring all the family of the earth would be blessed, or with David promising a son who would sit on his throne forever. God's covenant was his repeated promise to his people that he would send a savior to Israel who would redeem them from their sin and bring a blessing to all nations. And all those promises come together in the person of Jesus, the messenger of the covenant in whom his people will delight. So where is the God of justice? God's answer is, I'm right here, and I'm about to show up. My messenger is coming, and after him, I, the Lord, will show up in the temple. Now, someone might object and say, well, that's all well and good, God, but it did take you 430 years to fulfill this promise. It doesn't seem like you were right about to do it. Maybe someone would say no one could blame Israel for feeling a bit betrayed here after hundreds of years. After all, we may believe that God will come someday, but we feel that that doesn't excuse the injustice God lets happen now. But this response completely misses the point. Because while it's true, perhaps in a court system, delayed justice may indeed be injustice, that is not what God is doing. God, rather, in His wisdom, is perfectly just and perfectly merciful in His perfect timeline. See, God tells us in His Word that He allows the sinful, fallen world to continue until the fullness of evil is ready for judgment. And at the same time, he allows the world to continue even in its evil so that all his people will have a chance to be saved. We're told that in Second Peter chapter 3, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, but wishes that all, all of his people might come to repentance. God summarizes the same thing well in Revelation 6, where the martyred saints cry out, Oh, sovereign Lord, how long till you avenge our blood? Will you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? And God's response is they're given a white robe and told to rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. See, God is perfect in his justice and his mercy and his timeline. And not only that, but God tells us that he is sovereignly working even through evil now to bring about his purposes and to refine his people that they might walk the road of suffering that Christ walked in their union with him and be refined in holiness for their presence with him forever. This is not meant to be a detailed answer to the whole problem of evil, but it is meant to be a reminder that God's timing is perfect for perfect justice and perfect mercy. And we cannot call into question God's justice at any individual moment in time without calling into question God's character that has been shown true and will fully and finally be shown true on the last day. And so here's God's answer. Where is the God of justice? I am right here. 
I am about to come. But God's answer is immediately followed by his warning. And you see his warning in verse 2. God is about to show up, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? In other words, Israel, you're sitting here pining for the God of justice to show up, but do you realize the consequences of being brought into the presence of the God of justice as a sinner? See, Dr. Ian Good, Do Good reminds us well when he says, true justice is not a safe category for us. When justice is truly done, it does not simply mean an old-fashioned happy ending where the guys in the black hats are, get what they deserve and, and the good guys ride off into the sunset happily. No, true justice means equal and comprehensive judgment for all without partiality for any. See, we all tend to minimize our own faults and we maximize the wrongs of others. And Israel was no exception. They assumed that if the God of justice showed up, he would set things straight for them. They assumed he would show up and and beat the Persians and set Jerusalem free and bring honor and prosperity back. But, But Malachi has been calling out their sins for two whole chapters. They will be consumed if a God of justice shows up. And so Malachi warns Israel that no person will continue as is when the messenger of his covenant arrives. Every single person will either need to be cleansed by the fire of his spirit or will face him as a swift witness against their sin. Look look at each of these. In verses 2 through 4, Malachi describes the Messiah's cleansing fire which will purify his people and refine them like gold and silver so that the sons of Levi will bring offerings of righteousness, and so that all Israel will once again please the Lord. The refiner's fire is the first analogy. The refiner's fire was a a furnace heated to over 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And in that 2,000 degree heat, the gold and silver would be melted, and the dross or the scum would rise to the surface so that it could be scraped off, leaving only the pure metal in its place. Or the fuller's soap. The fuller's soap was a a harsh lye soap which would be used to scrub the clothing to get the dirt out. And after the fuller's soap was used to scrub, the clothes would be set out on a rock and beaten that all the dirt might be driven out. And so both of these images are images of the violent process of cleansing. But that is precisely the goal, that God will bring his people through cleansing, that they might bring offerings pleasing to him. And I think as God's people, we're probably used to thinking about the fire of judgment. But the Bible also consistently talks about the fire of the cleansing that his people will go through, that they might stand in his presence. Think of what John the Baptist, the very messenger, the messenger who will prepare the way before the Lord, think of what he said talking about Jesus. He said, he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. In the presence of this Lord, all will face the Holy Spirit and fire. 
all will be threshed. The question is, will you be gathered into the barn as the wheat or burned forever as the chaff? Hebrews 12 gets at the same point. It says that all who come to faith in Christ, God freely adopts as his sons and daughters. But then, having adopted us as his sons and daughters, God disciplines us for our good so that we might share in his holiness. 1 Peter 1 says the same thing, that God calls his people through suffering in order to test us and refine us as gold is refined in the fire. And 1 Corinthians 3 adds that believers who rest on the foundation of Christ will be saved on the last day, but only through fire, which will consume their sinful works and refine those done to the glory of God. So the Bible over and over talks about the fire, the refining fire that all who trust in Christ still must go through. And so for all who will be saved, we must remember that God does not show up to just give us a get-out-of-jail-free card and leave us as is. He welcomes us for the sake of Christ. He declares us righteous and accepted because we are united to Christ by faith. But then he takes us in his sovereignty and by his spirit, and he graciously brings us through this refining process of sanctification that we might become holy as he is holy and abide in his presence for eternity. And maybe the question for us is this, when we come to Christ by faith, is holiness and purity and godliness our goal and longing? Because that is God's goal for his people. Of course, a believer who has put his faith in Christ has no reason to fear this process. They're secure in Christ, and Christ provides the cleansing. But every believer must yet be cleansed And we dare not take that lightly. And so while we rejoice in the free gift of our salvation because of Christ's work for us, we are also called to rejoice in and desire repentance and cleansing and the progress God brings us towards holiness in this refining process. God's people will be refined through Christ. But on the other side of the coin, of course, those who do not respond in repentance, those who do not respond in faith, but continue in their sins, God says that he will draw near to them for judgment. And he calls out the sins in verses five, verse five here, the sins that marked Israel after they returned from exile. Sorcery, which was their attempt to find guidance in truth apart from God and his word and his prophets. Adultery, which Malachi has just discussed, swearing falsely, and those who oppress the vulnerable. And of course, God is not just condemning these six sins, and we see that because he concludes by adding, and those who do not fear me. This is a warning of judgment on all sin. And yet, while Malachi is condemning all sin, this list still represents significant reasons that God's judgment will be applied to the people of Israel. And as we saw in Zechariah, one of the clearest signs that a person does not fear the Lord is that they do not reflect God's care and concern for the poor and the widow, the stranger and the foreigner. Nor do they show any concern that the Lord is watching them as they oppress and neglect or thrust out the vulnerable. And so it's worth a reminder again that God's word gives us that God will be a swift witness against these sins. 
And so here once again, while Israel is impatiently crying out, where is the God of justice? God says, I am about to show up. And that is a warning for who can stand in my presence. The real question is, are you ready for the God of justice to come into your midst? Have you repented and drawn near to be refined for salvation? But at the end of this warning, God unexpectedly returns with a word of guarantee. And you see this in verse 6. It's a word of hope for sinful people. It's a word of hope for those who have just discovered that the God of justice is about to arrive. For he adds in verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. If God is a God of justice, the mystery for each one of us is not why does God continue to allow suffering in our lives, but rather why has God not consumed me for my sin against Him? We have again and again prioritized ourselves and our agenda. We have lived by a different standard than God's Word. And that evil deserves to be punished. And yet God again and again extends mercy to His people. Jacob himself did not receive the justice that he deserved, but was brought to repentance and shown mercy. And God has repeatedly shown mercy to His people, declaring in Psalm 103.8, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And why? Why does God continue to show this mercy and this grace? Because God has made promises and God does not change. He promised to save Abraham and his descendants. He promised that a remnant of Israel would inherit his promised glory and redemption. And because he does not change, Israel has not been consumed, but has been preserved even in their sins until the time when the messenger of God's covenant will show up to refine and to purify and to save those who are his. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. And so it is that we have confidence in God's character. His faithfulness, yes. His justice, yes. His steadfast love. That is Israel's ongoing hope for redemption. And just as it is Israel's hope, it is our hope. It is our hope. Because Jesus Christ, who does not change, but was the same yesterday, today, and forever, is the foundation of our hope and the one who has offered us salvation. And we can trust His Word. Well, as we end, let me conclude with two thoughts for us based on Israel's example. First, Israel's blindness to their sin calls each one of us to search our hearts and ask the Lord to reveal blindness and sin that may be in our lives as well. We are so often unable to see ourselves accurately. We don't see our sin or our error because our expectations and demands are shaping our perspective. Often, we are the least able to see the sins we are guilty of, and we hide behind self-justifying excuses. At other times, we're well aware of our sins, but we assume that they're not as big of a deal as other sins we see elsewhere, or that God will be merciful. But the God of justice is about to show up, Does each one of us have assurance 
That we will be accepted and welcomed when this God of justice shows up? Do we want to be refined and purified? That we might be in his presence? And if so, the question is, are we resting by faith in Christ's work alone for us, for our salvation? That is our hope. That is our assurance, knowing that he will come again. And final thought, we are in Advent. And so this is the perfect time of year to prepare for the coming of the Lord. Now, some of you have been listening to Christmas carols since November 1st, or maybe before that. And you're going to be sick of Christmas carols before we even get a chance to sing them here in December. And that's why I have maintained a very strict and tyrannical policy of no Christmas carols before Thanksgiving. Although I think my children have been listening to them in the car without me. But the point is, whether you're sick of it or not, at some point this December, we're all going to sing, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. But the question for us this morning, based on Malachi 2, is how can we sing that? How can we sing joy to the world when a God of justice is about to come into His temple? And who can endure the day of His coming? Why are we not singing instead, tremble, O world, the Lord is coming? And the answer is found on the table that we're about to come to. The Lord's table. Because when the Lord arrived, He was punished for our transgressions. The justice of God was laid on Him. He came first not to judge the world, but to save it. He went to death in our place and took the penalty that we deserved. And He rose again to send His Spirit to purify and redeem and make new any who will come to Him and put their faith in Him. And so it is because Jesus has come and taken that penalty and risen again in victory for our eternal life. If we have put our faith in Him, we can await His coming with His presence drawing near and sing, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let's pray. Father, how grateful we are for You. For You arrived in the person of Your Son, And you arrived first. Yes, the God of justice. But you arrived first and took just punishment on yourself. And so as we look at our hearts and we look at our lives and we see what true justice, which is not a safe category for us, we deserve. But we look to the cross. We look to the table in front of us to Jesus whose body was broken and blood was shed for us. And there we find hope. Because of Him who rose again as our Savior, through faith in Him we have joy. What a blessing. What a promise. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.